Reading fiction doesn't help us escape the world. It helps us live in it. This is the tagline for the podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Born as a project at Harvard Divinity School, it has brought tens of thousands of listeners into the space where we can find comfort in, take wisdom from, and challenge ourselves with well-beloved stories. The best stories show us ourselves, the loftiest heights to which we can soar and how we struggle and call out from within the depths. Stories create us as we create stories. Here is a blessing for all those who ever found solace in story. A blessing for those sneaking their favorite book underneath their desk during class. For those hiding a comic book inside their history book. For those sitting in their parked cars with tears streaming down their faces, not yet able to turn off the audiobook they are listening to. A blessing for everyone who has ever told a story around a campfire. A blessing for everyone who has ever listened. A blessing for every story we invent to explain the noise we heard, the heartache we feel, and the joy when we make someone else laugh. And a final blessing for us all from Albus Dumbledore. Happiness can be found even in the darkest of times if one remembers to turn on the light. If you were enrolled at Hogwarts School for Witchcraft and Wizardry, one of the required courses you would have to take is Defense Against the Dark Arts. The Hogwarts professor Severus Snape said of this subject, the dark arts are many, varied, ever-changing, and eternal. Fighting them is like fighting a many-headed monster. Each time a neck is severed, a new head um, sprouts even fiercer and cleverer than before. You are fighting that which is unfixed, mutating, indestructible. So your defenses must be as flexible and inventive as the arts that you seek to undo. Today, many young people who grew up reading the stories of Harry Potter have come to find that the forces of greed and hatred and division are found not only in the pages of children's books, but sometimes uh, far too often here in the real world. Ironically, those same pages of children's books can sometimes also serve to put us back in touch with the creativity and imagination needed to keep our defenses as flexible and inventive as the arts we seek to counteract. So with Halloween only a few days away, I invite you to spend a little time with me reflecting on a tale of witchcraft and wizardry and the lessons that these stories might hold for us for such a time as this. I'm by no means arguing that Harry Potter is the first or only set of resources we should reach for, but we are missing potentially a prime opportunity if we neglect the power of a book series that has sold more than 500 million copies in English alone, uh, been translated into more than 28 languages in 130 countries, all those classic children's books of the 20th century like Charlotte's Web and the Chronicles of Narnia and you know, just all those books have all, as many copies as they've sold, they've all been dwarfed by how much Harry Potter has sold. 
The Harry Potter books were published over the span of a decade, from 1997 to 2007, and I think there are probably quite a few of us in this room who can remember where you were over the course of that decade when various ones of the books were published. I first jumped on the bandwagon in the spring of 1999. The third volume was scheduled to be published that summer, and the hype around it made me curious enough to read the first two books to, uh, before that third one came out. Another year later, in the summer of 2000, I remember scheduling my night off as a camp counselor to attend a midnight release of the fourth book. I then stayed up on that lakeside porch under a lantern, um, reading way too late and was exhausted the next day. In retrospect, you might think, you know, oh, I should have gone to bed earlier. I would say in retrospect, totally worth it. No regrets. Megan and I even have a dog named Dobby, who, yes, is named after the beloved house elf of the series. If you begin to read Harry Potter more closely, though, one aspect that begins to quickly pop out is the etymological resonance of many of the names. So the first name of the wise and brave Professor McGonagall is appropriately Minerva, the Roman goddess of wisdom and strategic warfare. Or take Malfoy, that last name of uh, Harry's childhood nemesis who often acts dishonestly. That name Malfoy in French, it literally means bad faith, right? He is a bad faith actor, Malfoy. Uh, the series' arch-villain, who does terrible acts of evil precisely to try to avoid his own mortality. His name, Voldemort. Think of that, you know, Mort, Voldemort. It literally in French means theft from death or flight from death. I mean, I love these little nerdy details. And while it's certainly fine to simply enjoy the story on a straightforward level, there are many other examples along these lines of the tale's intricacy and depth that are waiting for the intrepid reader just below the surface. Or what is revealed if we close the book and look on the spine at the author's name? Joanne Kathleen Rowling she, Rowling, she didn't go by JK in general. She was told to shorten her name to JK out of the fear that boys will not read a book by a woman. Half a billion copies later, it seems like all genders like these books just fine. Uh, but along those lines, even though all seven Harry Potter books begin with Harry Potter and the, right? Harry Potter and the blank. The closer you read, the more endearing and centrally important many of the other characters seem, especially uh, this shift happens for many people pretty quickly with uh, Harry's best friend, Hermione. Consider, for instance, this quite accurate list of, without changing anything in the text, you could change the titles um, to some of these alternatives. Is it better to call it Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone, right? Or should we call it Hermione Granger and that time I used the power of research and deductive reasoning to make sure Harry didn't die? <laughs> you know, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, solid title, or Hermione Granger and that time I figured stuff out and literally ended up petrified for the cause and it took my friends weeks to figure out I had the research on me the whole time. You know, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, or Hermione Granger, and that time I was a Time Lord. I'm here for that book. You know, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, or Hermione Granger, and that time I realized how hot and smart I am and saved Harry's butt with research. Subtitle, again, all the time, really, he would have died without me. 
Harry Potter and the Order of Phoenix or Hermione Granger. And that time, Harry was too emo to actually do stuff. And so I did stuff in his name because I am the power behind the throne. And P.S. fought evil Death Eaters and won. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, or Hermione Granger, and that time I told Harry about the dangers of copying someone's work that wasn't mine, and oh look, I was right. Uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, or Hermione Granger, and that time I let Harry decide where to go and what to do, and we ended up wandering in the Forest of Dean for five months before I saved his butt at Hogwarts. So I I love how those titles are both playful and subversive. Remember, when seeking to smash the patriarchy and to dismantle dark arts like sexism, your defenses must be as flexible and inventive as the arts that you seek to undo. Now let's take that act of reading between the lines just one level deeper. Uh, Have any of you seen Harry Potter and the Cursed Child? I haven't. That's the stage play in New York. I've seen just a hand or two. Um, Or read it? Anybody read it? All right, more hands. Uh, Well, when a black actress was cast as Hermione in the stage play in New York, Rowling famously tweeted, Canon, she has brown eyes, frizzy hair, and she's very clever. White skin was never specified. Rowling loves black Hermione. Now, of course, we live in an age of famously race-bending shows such as Hamilton that takes historically white founders of this country, played by actors of various races, but Rowling's actually doing something um, more subtle and interesting here, um, that she's highlighting that that in the absence of a character's race being explicitly named, many, though not all readers, if any of you are on Tumblr, there's a whole like Tumblr thing that's been going on for a long time about Black Hermione, uh, but the, that many, not all readers, imagined she was white, right? They just defaulted to that. Texts such as Harry Potter can begin to break open when we have uh, close rereadings. We can find really heretofore, heretofore unseen possibilities. Another important method of engaging a text is to learn more about the context, the history behind and the setting, and especially about the author. And there's some fascinating ways that J.K. Rowling's real life shows up in her fiction. There's many details I'd love to expand on. I'll give you two quick ones. Uh, Just like uh, Harry, Ron, and Hermione met as strangers on a train, at least for me, I, I sort of get chills when I remember that it's her parents met as strangers on a train, precisely on a train departing from King's Cross Station in London, just like Harry and Hermione and Ron. Or when Professor Trelawney predicts that thing you are dreading, it will happen on Friday the 16th of October. That's precisely the date of Rowling's first wedding, which resulted in a short-lived marriage of 13 months and one day. So for those in the know, it's just a little public dig at her ex-husband. I could go on with numerous other examples, but I'll say just a little bit more about a much more serious example. A mere six months after the idea of Harry Potter sprung unexpectedly and suddenly into uh, Rowling's mind, actually while she was on a train, trains are like a big thing, uh, her mother died. Her mother died at the age of 45 after living for decades with multiple sclerosis. And death is a major theme in the Harry Potter books. And Rowling has said that the influence of my mother's death is on virtually every other page. 
And the willingness of the Harry Potter series to take on serious issues like mortality is one of the reasons for its significant impact and one of the reasons it's helped prepare its readers, both young and old, for a better defense against the dark arts. And in contrast to those who had banned the Harry Potter books for various silly reasons, one English professor who has closely studied the series rightly affirmed that children actually need to see their feelings, particularly the darkest and most difficult ones, reflected in their stories. Mitigating the darkness in fairy tales takes away their power to reassure children that they are not alone in their fearful imaginings. Other people have these too. And they can be shared, they can be addressed together. And in powerful ways, each of the seven books incrementally grows up with Harry from age 11 in book one to age 18 in book seven, with the themes becoming more mature and challenging as you go. Those mature themes include strong parallels between the characters in the Harry Potter books who fight for wizard supremacy and those in our own world who fight for white supremacy. Indeed, there's a classic line from the main villain Voldemort that there is no good and evil, only power, and those too weak to seek it. I suspect many of you can think of people here in the real world using power only for their own selfish ends, using power to support and embolden white supremacists, using power to commit acts of cruelty to immigrants, uh, minorities, and other people with marginalized identities. In contrast, as former President Barack Obama said in his eulogy on Friday honoring Representative Elijah Cummings in Maryland, he said, it has been remarked that Elijah was a kind man. And I was thinking, this is what I would want my daughters to know, that being a strong man includes being kind, that there's nothing weak about kindness and compassion. There's nothing weak about looking out for others. There's nothing weak about being honorable and that you're not a sucker to have integrity and to treat others with respect. Indeed, it takes strength to be all those things and an abundance of, of generosity. So I'm grateful for lives such as Representative Cummings who lived out that truth for so many days of his life. But also, as some of you have heard me say before, in addition to these sometimes too rare lived examples, we can sometimes just go back to those simple truths that we teach our children to remind ourselves as adults of the importance of kindness, of compassion, of friendship, of being there for each other. Relatedly, there's a fascinating invention in rolling story called a horcrux. I could actually spend a lot of time going into that. It's a whore like horrible, right? And crux like a cross, right? So someone who's sacrificed unduly. Um, that it gives lie to Voldemort's claim that it is only weakness that prevents people from doing evil. And that if you were strong, then you would do evil, right? Everyone would do evil if they were strong. Readers of this book will know that a horcrux can only be created by an act of evil and that the consequence literally rips your soul apart. In the Harry Potter books, that soul ripping is literal, but the larger point is metaphorical, that one's soul, one's spirit, one's conscience, if you will, is wrenched every time we, try, we choose cruelty over kindness. Our soul, our conscience is wrenched every time we choose greed over generosity, every time we choose dishonesty over integrity. As a wise man once said, what shall it profit you to gain the whole world but lose your soul? 
Or as the meditation teacher Jack Kornfield has said, it turns out it's really hard to sit there for a peaceful meditation session after a long day of stealing, lying, and killing. <laughs> right? You know, I think about those first, those first and third parts of our mission statement here, spirituality, community, justice. Sometimes those can be seen as opposition, in opposition, spirituality, and justice, but it actually turns out how you're living your life ethically has a whole lot to do with whether you can show up and grow spiritually, and whether you're spiritually grounded has a lot to do with your effectiveness in doing social justice. Our choices matter, as Dumbledore, Harry's headmaster, famously tells them. It is our choices, Harry, that show who we truly are far more than our abilities. It's not what you're capable of doing, it's what you actually do, right? Behavior is believable. Deeds, not creeds. That line is tragically echoed in the fourth book when one of Harry's classmates is killed. Dumbledore says, we are all facing dark and difficult times. Remember Cedric. Remember if the time should come when you have to make a choice between what is right and what is easy. Remember what happened to a boy who was good and kind and brave because he happened to stray across the path of Lord Voldemort. We too are facing dark and difficult times in our country and around the world, and it certainly doesn't have to be Harry Potter that points you back to what is right over what is easy, but it can be. Something as simple as a children's story can call us back to what we know in our hearts is right. But remember, our challenge is not only choosing what is right and good over what is easy and expedient, but also having the certainty to keep our actions for peace, having the creativity to keep our actions for peace and justice as flexible and inventive as the arts we seek to undo. J.K. Rowling herself emphasized precisely that point when she was invited to deliver the commencement address at Harvard University. So, you know, having the opportunity to address these incredibly privileged and powerful folk, her speech was titled, The Fringe Benefits of Failure and the Importance of Imagination. One sentence particularly stands out to me from that speech. She said, we do not need magic to change the world. We carry all the power we need inside ourselves already. We have the power to imagine better. There are far too many people in power around the world today who are seeking to use that power to imagine a worse world, a world that is more inequitable, a world that's more divided, more violent. But again, in Dumbledore's words, Lord Voldemort's gift for spreading discord and enmity, it's very great. I suspect you can imagine some people in our world today who are playing that Lord Voldemort role in real life of spreading discord and enmity. But here's the crucial line that follows. We can fight it only by showing an equally strong bond of friendship and trust. Stay together. As in the tale of Harry Potter, a major resource in our defense against the dark arts is precisely one another. It's the friends we make along the way. The friends we meet on trains, as strangers, at school, in classes, during coffee hour, while making flower bouquets together, while at choir practice, while walking the labyrinth, while cleaning up in the kitchen after services, and so many other ways. The great, promises of, the great promise of communities like this one is that you do not have to go through this life alone. We're stronger together. 
Now, we began this service with a chalice lighting that riffed on the division of the young Hogwarts witches and wizards into four different houses, Gryffindor, Slytherin, Ravenclaw, and Hufflepuff. These houses are often rivals in various competitions, and they typically eat separately in the dining hall, these four long parallel tables without sitting beside one another. But near the end of the series, it's significant uh, after the climactic, fierce battle for Hogwarts. The four tables, they're all put back in their normal place. But if you look closely, nobody was sitting in their usual places. They weren't sitting according to house anymore. They were all huddled together, teacher and pupil, ghosts and parents, centaurs and house elves. We, too, gather here each week in our big tent, atheists and Buddhists, Christians and pagans, Jews and Muslims, and much more besides, all within this big tent of Unitarian Universalism. I'm grateful to be with all of you on this journey as we seek to encourage and accompany one another in these all-too-real defense against the dark arts for such a time as this. As we hold that promise and potential in our heart, please rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together hymn 1015. I know I can. <laughs> 